Hi, and welcome to Purpose to Perform. I am Dr. Jo Brown, APA-titled sports and exercise physiotherapist, mentor, and coach. And this is a new podcast dedicated to high performance for anyone who's up for it. Driven by purpose, join me as we dive deep and explore what it takes to be a high performer, integrate and assimilate cutting-edge evidence, learn from experienced experts in all aspects of high performance and ultimately inspire your journey into performance. Whether you are an athlete, coach or allied health professional, this podcast is for you. Welcome to my world. Welcome to Purpose to Perform. Let's do this. I'm Dr. Joe Brown, sports physiotherapist and performance coach. I'm here today speaking with Denise Boyd. Denise is a two times Olympic finalist in the 200 meters sprint, gold medalist in the 200 meters 1978 Empton Commonwealth Games. In 2009, was awarded into the Queensland Sport Hall of Fame. Her husband, Ray, also a Commonwealth Games champion and double Olympian, represented in Pulver. A whole family of athletes, Denise, in their own right. And even your daughter, Alana, I know became an Olympic pole vaulter. So Denise, thank you so much for being with us today. Such a pleasure to have you on the show and being part of the Women's Sports Series. And I think you've just got such an amazing story to tell and so much to give our listeners. So thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Joe. So I'd just like to start, Denise, um, talking a little bit about your achievements as an Australian sprinter. And I think sometimes people don't really realise what it takes to be successful as an athlete on a world stage. And, you know, your achievements as an Australian sprinter can probably only be compared to a handful of athletes within the last century. So hats off to you. That's an amazing achievement. And especially as an Australian I guess I'm passionate about running. You know, I work with the gym makers and I love what I do. And I see running is truly a world sport. You know, everyone runs. We can all run and everyone can do it to some extent. Everyone can run and jump. And I know you believe that as well. Yes, I do, Joe. Um, everyone does run and jump. And there's over 100 countries who compete in Olympic Games in track and field. And so you're really competing against the very best if you get to that level. I guess I started running when I was at primary school and um, I went to a Carina State School in Brisbane and I was always the best runner as a seven, eight, nine-year-old and and I uh, would win all the races by metres and mm-hmm. so went on to state titles uh, as a primary school athlete at the exhibition grounds, the Ecker grounds in Brisbane and I won the 50-yard sprint for nine years or for 10 years as a nine-year-old. Wow. And that, so that was the start of it. You know, there was no training or, or anything. There was no little athletics. And, you know, I remember sitting in the stands of the Ecker and mum saying, no, no, don't go down and get, get tired. There was no warming up. I never warmed up. I just <laughs> went out there and, and got there on time and ran the 50 metres and won it. And uh, 50 yards it was. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, it was, um, I just loved it because I was good at it, I guess. And I think everyone's everyone loves what they're good at. I can remember primary school when 
as a 13, 14-year-old winning the state secondary titles at the, at the old Lang Park on the grass and other girls in my age group um, saying to me, oh, we all know who's going to win. And, I mean, I was so very shy and I would sort of put my head down and walk away. Mm-hmm. I knew I was going to win too, but it was just <laughs> a matter of whether I got the record. Um, so I had a, a little bit of confidence in my ability and it was all natural ability at that stage because I never really joined a club or mm-hmm. or started training till I was about 13 or 14 but it really is the the global sport and um uh, you know I was pleased to to be in that individual sport even though I played netball and softball at school and really enjoyed it I just liked the fact that I was in charge of my achievements and my disappointments I think that's something I hear from so many athletes that, you know, do those individual sports is, you know, they can choose how hard they push themselves and, you know, their performance is based on what they put in, not what others put in. And I can see like different personality types, obviously are drawn to different sports and then your skill level and your natural skill set and attributes are going to direct you in certain ways. And I know that you competed in such a different era to what we're in today and, you know, it is hard to compare apples with apples, but what do you think it made you specifically competitive in your generation? Because as we look back through history, only, you know, that handful of Australians have been competitive on that global scale in athletics. So was there something special that you had or, you know, what do you think it was for you? Well, I think I came through my teenage years and into my 20s in an era in the country where sprinting was, you know, in a good state. There was lots and lots of great sprinters in the country, um, particularly my rival, main rival, uh, Raylene Boyle. And we, she was a little head of, little head of me. She went to the, the Olympics in uh, 68 in Mexico and 72 in Munich. I had injury in 72 and didn't perform well at trials and obviously, you know, couldn't have been selected for Munich. You know, I pushed on because um, I knew I had the the chance of going to the Montreal and Moscow Games, which I did. But, you know, there was a great history of sprinting before us uh, in an era where a lot of the world didn't compete. But great performances put out by Australians um, over the years from the in the 50s and the 60s and I I think for me it was I I never really had a hero because I was only a a very young child when Betty Cuthbert you know won her gold medals in 56 and 60 and Betty in fact gave me my first pair of spikes when I was I think about 15 years old she worked for Adidas and she gave me these spikes and I I remember they were um, the the biggest pair of spikes I think I ever owned because (laughs) uh, my parents thought, no, look, get something that's a little bit bigger than fits your foot now because um, there wasn't a lot of money around to go buying a lot of spikes and and, um, I never grew into them. I think the competition we had in the country, the interclub system that existed in our era where we competed week in and week out from October to March, which doesn't happen now with the elite athlete. A lot of elite athletes these days avoid their rivals. They, they avoid being beaten, 
where I was beaten on a lot of occasions in October by sprinters who shouldn't have beaten me when I was in heavy work, but I wasn't beaten by them in March when the chips were down and the selection trials were on. And I think it's about training for the big picture, but why do you train? You train to compete. My athletic squad um, group now, they compete more than a lot of other groups do because I insist that they do and because I think it's a good form of training. But it just hardens the athlete. We, we race over, I raced over the three sprint distances. The be, my best distances, um, distance was the 200 metres, mm-hmm. although many would say it should have been the 400. And <laughs> I left it till the last year of my career to move to 400s or actually train for 400s. Um, all the four, I ran many, many 400s in, in my athletics career against men, elite women, mm-hmm. and I, I know it toughened me up and made me a better 200-metre runner. And I think that's a really um, important point that you made there about the toughening up. And I could hear you comparing a little bit, you know, where athletics is today in Australia compared to your era. And obviously it's quite different in terms of how we sit on the world stage in Australia compared to how we did back in your era. And do you think something's changed or has, you know, the value or the strengths within athletics in Australia changed or is it just the world has developed and grown? I was in the the era of the Eastern European countries and, and um you know, drugs. So I competed against all the East Germans and the Russians and the Poles and the Czechs and all of the Eastern Europeans who had been found that they were drug-assisted. At the time, it didn't, I knew, but it didn't particularly worry me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I would be tested, drug-tested in Europe and, um, and asked, are you right for a drug test tonight? Well, yes, I'm right. I'm clean. You know, so they'll, t- <laughs> they'll test that the lady clean there. Clean. <laughs> yeah, I'm clean. So test me. You know, that's fine. That's what they wanted because they, you know they didn't want their um, meat tarnished with the positive drug test. And um, and you know, I I always thought, well, okay, these girls have to train hard, but of course they could probably train harder because they are on something that could make them train harder. But, I, you know, I felt that I, I trained really hard too and spent probably more days on the track that the current athlete doesn't. Um, I think I had more running in my legs. I was able to compete day after day in majors. Always ran the 100 as a warm-up for my two. It was I was never really quick enough to be mm-hmm. world standard. I made a semi-final in Moscow, which was pretty good, but... Um, I think that counts as world well yeah. more than pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was always a good warm-up to get two or three 100-metre races before I ran four 200-metre races. You know, I, I remember at the Commonwealth Games in 78 when I'd won the 200-metre gold, I'd won the bronze in the 100. I think it was the bronze in the 4 by one and a silver in the 4 by 4 So I had a lot of running to do. But I was capable of doing it because I had a lot of running in my legs. I try, I ran on the track five, six days a week, where these days probably physios would say, no, 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 you can't do that. And I had a lot <laughs> of over, <laughs> overuse injuries because I did a lot of running. But that was a way for me to be able to um, handle day after day with your best performance being the final. 
And, and in 78, well, I remember being presented by the Duke of Edinburgh, the 4x4 uh, the four four team. We, were, we won the silver. And um, he said to me, this is your fourth. And I sort of frowned and I didn't really know what he meant. And he said, your fourth medal for the Games. And I said, well, yes, it is. It is. So someone had obviously worded him up before he did the presentation that that um, I'd won, you know, had run the two relays and the two sprints and in all of them had four medals. Yeah, so I think I think we were very capable of, of doing that in, the, in those days because we did spend more time on the track, less time in the gym. And I couldn't do much in the gym because I had a bad back. I was probably very weak in the upper body, didn't use, I had a very low arm carry when I ran. I really didn't run technically as good as I could have. I reached a little bit with the lower leg. I sort of wonder what I could have done if I was the perfect technician. I try to coach my athletes with mm -hmm. perfect technique these days. But I, was say, I do say to them, I never ran perfectly myself. <laughs> and you're, you obviously have had to you know, learn from your own experience in your own career and taking that into coaching and if there's one what's the biggest thing now as a coach that you do differently to how you were trained when you race well you know I, I, I probably do a lot of things that my coach did for me mm -hmm. um, I know the words I can only advise I use occasionally and that is when my coach Neville Silito used to say to me now, Robbo, because my maiden name was Robertson, he called me Robbo, and he said, I want a very strong 350. And, of course, I would feel sick because I knew a very strong 350 meant that I would be over the fence at the end of it. And <laughs> I, trained, I trained with a lot of Neville's schoolboys who were 13, 14 years of age who could run 11 seconds for 100, 22 seconds for a... These were good schoolboys, 22 seconds for a, a two and 51 seconds, 50 seconds for a four. He was, he was a little bit um, um, cunning at times or shrewd, should I say. <laughs> if he wanted a really good run out of me, he would put me on the outside. In the same lane, we'd run in lane one together in lane one, but he'd, he'd make and he'd tell the schoolboy, make a run because I'd, I'd have to run that, those few metres further on the outside. But if you wanted just a, you know, a, a good strong run, but not a very strong run, he'd put me in the inside. And, and it was just so good for me to train with these young boys. They would go, they, boys improved so quickly and, and I would just go through another couple of boys because these boys got too fast for me. Just made, I raced in training a lot and enjoyed it and worked really hard. Whilst I had natural ability, I probably didn't have the natural ability of someone like Raylene Boyle. I know you mentioned earlier that you obviously raced Raylene Boyle and I guess in a way it's probably quite a lucky thing that she was in your era and there was this target within your country which was, I guess, a realistic goalpost for you to work against. How do you think that influenced your career? I think, yeah, it was critical because, um, you know, we, we were great competitors for many years and um, didn't particularly get on all that well. Um, didn't have too much in common except we ran fast. <laughs> and um, That's enough, I think. You know, yeah, and, and, and so we, we wanted um, to beat each other every time we stepped on the, on the track and um, I took lots of 
beatings and, and she took beatings from me too, but we were very good for each other. In training, as you mentioned before, how has I've taken anything into my training? Well, I guess I coach a little bit like I was coached and I, I like to have a squad. Uh, they're a good support for each other. There's always the, you know, that varies variation in standard and age, but that's fine. I, I haven't got your Olympic champions. I've never coached anyone who could ever be an Olympic champion, but I've enjoyed it because, you know, they, they show commitment and improvement. And they're obviously really important values to you and so that I'm sure you're making great athletes and whatever they want to achieve. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm always uh, big. I've always been big too that it, to say to them too, it, it, of course, it's a, it's a big part of your life, but it's not your whole life. You've got to work. You've got to have a job. I had a job when I was at the elite level. I didn't, I was a teacher and um, I, I taught part-time sometimes or full-time and it was a very busy life. But I just think you can't sit at home and um, think about the sore hamstring or the sore Achilles you've got all day and um, have your appointments and then go out and train and do the same thing the next day. I think you've got to have a balance in life and that balance is um, studying or work as and I well think as just that's a really important comment there, Denise, and I think the most successful athletes I know and have worked with, worked with on that world stage have a purpose or, you know, something greater than just their sport. You know, they have you know, either a business or they have a charity or they have something else to fulfil them to get that balance. And I think the athletes that actually end up struggling are the ones that only get so far and all they have is their sport. And I think that's probably because, a really big takeaway for all athletes out there. Yeah, because you're only an injury away from the finish of it, aren't you? As you know, because you... I yes, see them. I fix them up. Right. And, and I, um, the other thing I think is so fascinating, Denise, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is, you know, in your era of athletics, there was so much talent. And like you said, there was quite a really, like a large community and you seem to have, you know, athletes around you that you're training and you're doing great times and all those kind of things. And, like, I'm curious to your thoughts on have we just lost some of that talent to other sports along the way? You know, they, you know, are our fast runners being poached to, you know, the footy teams where they can make better money and, or they, you know, even women's sevens. Now I know a, a sprinter that got poached to sevens and, you know, is that what's happening or is this, you know, the rest of the world progressed in a different way? What do you, do you have thoughts on that? Well, well, I think particularly more particularly in men's um, events, there always used to be uh, people sitting in the stands at the old schools recruiting or having a look at sprinters or middle distance runners, perhaps for AFL. Mm-hmm. And um, and I and I think in men's sports, there's probably some people who may have been, you know, good athletes. Not so much in the women, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And particularly sprinters. So I think middle distance runners, um, obviously the AFL players ca- um, uh, cover a lot of kilometres every game and, and there has been some decent 800 metre, 1500 metre runners who have gone to AFL and that's the sort of athlete you want. Um, these people, And then there's, there's other events, I suppose, like high jump where they're not particularly very often really athletic people like a long jumper perhaps Mm -hmm. is 
um, but they they've got the height and and they can they can move freely and then there's probably people in other sports who who could have been good in that event but the event often picks you too you know like I know with our three we got brought back into the sport oh I suppose when when Alana was 13 Jacinta 11 and Matt 9 and Alana wanted to join the A's. so okay well well we'll we'll be back at the athletics we're back at athletics again after having years away from it and and uh, not really much to do with, do with athletics at all. And, and we, we did enjoy Little A. So three of them joined and we were there forever. I remember at school sports, we could, uh, you know, I'd overhear people saying, she's a boy, she trains six days a week, <laughs> and which wasn't Some, true. I mean, we, we, yeah, we wanted, um, we could teach them skills. Ray could teach them how to throw a discus and, how to, to high jump and long jump and that. And I could teach them how to sprint and a bit of hurdles and that. But And they just um, they just loved it. We never had to say, now, you must get into the back of the car and we're going to the track. They wanted to do it. Um, so they didn't have to be motivated by us at all. And so, we, you know, we enjoyed that time of our lives. But, the, but all three of them did other sports. Matt played really good soccer and, and, and in the summer um, cricket. The girls did gymnastics till they were about 10 and the hours became too great and too late um, to continue. Um, but it was very good for their core strength in the end. Um, and then they did dance from when they were about six or seven years of age and, and that was good for strength and for... They were both shy and it was, it was very good for them um, socially to attend dance. And they, they did that till they were about 16. But I think there comes a time if you've got the talent, you've got to concentrate on what you're doing. I remember Matt um, at school was in the rugby team and, and he, he got um, uh, his, you know, his mates would say, oh, come on, you've got to play rugby this year. And he said, no, I want to make the world youth team and I don't want to have an ACL. So he did. He, st- he stepped aside of the rugby team and, and, and um, he did make the world youth team. I said that I think that's such an important message is, you know, making the decisions that are right for you at the time. And I think so many athletes make decisions based on what they think other people, you know, want them to do or should do rather than what's right for them and their career. And I know that you, all three of your kids sounds like they were very, very talented in their own right. But it was Alana that took up the poll vote following her dad that, you know, get me if I'm wrong, but became made history by being the first athlete to go to the Olympics having both parents as Olympians is that right yes it is right yes in um in uh 08 yes in Beijing she was the the first on in Olympic Australian Olympic history which was a, a great honor for her yeah that must have been amazing yeah do you, how do you think that impacted her career do you think that put any pressure on her or do you think she was pretty or do I have to talk to her at some stage? <laughs> it, it, probably, it probably did put pressure on her, you know. I mean, she knew that I'd come seventh in two Olympic finals and, um, and I think she probably wanted to um, achieve better than that. Um, and, and she did in Rio with a fourth, of course. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that was wonderful. But, but, yeah, look, it probably did, but we didn't, we didn't want them to feel the pressure that they had to achieve what we achieved. I know all of them on their report cards at, at Malulabar Primary, 
Um, you know, what do you want to achieve? What are your ambitions? And all of them wanted to go to the Olympics and all of them wanted to win Olympic medals even. It, it was something that they always thought about. And, and as I said, they never needed to be motivated to train. Ray never thought to put a pole in Alana's hand until she was about 18 years of age. Uh, and we don't know why, you know. I mean, <laughs> you know, she, she hurdled. She was taught to hurdle uh, by Paul Faithful, who coached Glenis Saunders, Glenis Nunn. And she was a good hurdler and won a national under 18 hurdles championship. But she never really had the ground speed to be a world-class hurdler like Sally Pearson. Her sprint speed wasn't as good as my sprint speed. In fact, Jacinta's sprint speed was far better than Alana's ground speed. But she won a hurdles title because she was a very good technician. Alana learned to hurdle correctly. She also high jumped when she was about 14, 15. And she, um, I think, jumped 170 as a 14-year-old in high jump. But she grew and to about 171, I think, Alana's height was. And um, probably not, not tall enough to be a world-class high jumper. But the, the pole vault, well, as soon as Ray put a, put a pole in her hand, well, she took to it like a duck to water. Um, she had enough speed. Uh, she had gymnastics, uh, gymnastic ability. She had awareness in the air and, um, and just, you know, achieved very quickly. And within five years of taking up pole vault, made an Olympic team. So, you know, that was a great achievement for her. The others, um, Matt wanted to pole vault too, and he was 14. And he didn't have the, um, the awareness, the, uh, the gymnastic ability that Alana did, but he had real determination and did <laughs> so well to make a Commonwealth Games team in, to Glasgow in 2014 and went to World Uni Games. Um, so that was wonderful. And, and, and Jacinta, well, Jacinta was probably, probably the, you know, well, very athletic. Um, the most successful as a junior, went to two world juniors and a world youth, um, came fourth and sixth. In fact, as a 16-year-old in Jamaica in 02, she came sixth in the long jump over there in an under-20 competition. Being a long jumper, it's a bit of impact on the feet and she had um, a few foot issues. Mm. Um, and then sadly, oh, 2010, 2011, she got chronic fatigue and... Um, she was studying at the time and got through the study, but um, but never really recovered enough to, you know, make a, a well, she made a senior team, a, a university team, but not a Commonwealth Games team. Um, so she was disappointed with that, but there's others who have been in the same position and, you know, she got over it and, and, and moved on and supported her, her siblings. And I guess, Denise, if I take you back, to your career, we mentioned it briefly earlier about being in that era of drugs and sport. How do you feel it really impacted you personally? Do you think there was, obviously you made two Olympic finals and is there a part of you that just goes, what if the drugs weren't there and where would I have come out? Is there anything? Yes, yes. I, 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 no doubt I would have finished maybe a, a few places up. Mm -hmm. on, on, in both finals, um, and whether that was near was nearer the medals, maybe mm -hmm. I, I might have I might have had an Olympic medal, but I haven't. So and and I can deal with that. Um, but it did impact on my retirement because I was I think I was thirty, and I'd been to the first ever World Championships in eighty three in in um, Helsinki, 
and I had to make a decision, do I retire or do I continue? And I made the decision to retire because I thought I've been to two Olympic Games, I've made finals at two Olympic Games and I felt that I could make a final again if I trained for another 12 months, um, but I wouldn't win a medal if I wasn't on drugs and I wasn't going to be on drugs, never, been, never had been on drugs and so I decided I'd retire and started a family. So I looked, I um, uh, watched the LA Olympics the following year um, with uh, Baby. Alana was born wow. in the May and no uh, regrets. Yeah, amazing. And that's, that's what you want, I think, for so many athletes. And I think 2020, Denise has challenged so many athletes. So potentially, you know, 2020 was going to be their last Olympics and they'd kind of planned the end of their career. And now that goalpost has been moved potentially to 2021. And I think, you know, making that decision reti- to retire can be one of the hardest decisions an athlete can make, obviously. And... Um, what I, I've had quite a few conversations recently with athletes that I know and speak with. And, um, you know, there's one thing being able to connect someone with the ultimate performance, but there's also another thing to be able to let it go and release it. And, you know, that's a really tough thing to do. And I think you did, you know, obviously what you need to do at the right time. And now you have three amazing children and a beautiful family and a daughter that made history by having two Olympian parents. So. Mm. Well, they were my my three best achievements, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh, I'm sure they're going to love hearing you say that, Denise. (laughs) I was going to ask you what your best achievement was, but now there you go, you've taken it away. Well, on the athletic track, I guess um, guess making two Olympic finals. Whether I was expected to in 76, I don't know. I... I was the sort of athlete who had to race a lot to race myself into shape. I had a few injuries, probably these overuse injuries, because I spent a lot of time on the track. So that was a bonus, making the final in 76. In 80, I was, uh, I was in the best shape of my career, had run a personal best in Sydney at the um, trials. And it, it, it was a time, at the time, it was an Australian record and... Um, I think it was the fifth fastest 200 metres ever run all time at the time. In, in it's, it's certainly not now. It's well down, <laughs> well down the field. Yeah, and, and that was, I was so pleased with that run. You know, it, it was after three hours sleep, I can honestly tell you, I was so excited that I was in such good shape, I just couldn't sleep. And I never got to sleep till 5am. And and, uh, it worried me that I'd had no sleep. And I I don't think I would have liked to have run on the Monday. It was a Sunday. But to have another day um, to wait for that race and and no sleep, I don't think I would have run as well. But I was running against Raylene and it was a real... Match race, I'd won the 100 the day before. She'd run the 400, won the 400, and we were meeting over our favourite distances. So um, we were frightened. I was certainly had that fear of losing, which is how I competed. You know, it was one of my biggest uh, achievements. Then running a final in Moscow. Unfortunately, I got sick before Moscow and I ran, I was crook in Moscow and wasn't well for the, for the next six months. And it was found that I had hepatitis mm-hmm. um, and I just lost, lost strength. Yeah, I always wonder what could have been. 
had that not happened. Travelling, I didn't travel well in Europe, didn't compete all that well in Europe, but usually competed well in, in the big one. So that was, I guess, one of my I think you can wonder, but as long as you've got no no regrets, right? Oh, no. No, I don't at all. No. And we've chatted with that this before, um, Denise, and, you know, there's the era of sports changed so much since your day and, you know, now everyone's pretty much professional and full sponsorships, etc. And today I just see the media playing such a huge role in people's expectations and especially here in Australia society-wise, not really understanding that difference, in, particularly in some sports like athletics, between, say, the level of Commonwealth Games and the Olympic Games. And, you know, you can win a medal at the Commonwealth Games and not be making the final at the Olympics, for instance, and the 100-metre sprint. So how do you think the media, you know, plays a role today compared to your era? I'm guessing your era was all about clippings of newspapers and things like that. Yes. Yes, well, I do have a uh, suitcase full of paper clippings in the garage, um, <laughs> usually just tor- torn out of the, the paper with the date on it. And um, I probably need an assistant to, to go through all of that and, and collate it. Yeah, look, athletics was publicised uh, so much more than it is these days. Like every uh, interclub was attended by press photographers but the thing is in those days all the top athletes competed in interclub they competed every week didn't just come out in february uh, run the state titles run the nationals and finish their season you know so there was something to write about and And you're seeing those big names each week not just like you say yeah and and i mean your your reputation your to the public would change from right up to right up because obviously you'd be quoted as saying this and often wasn't right, wasn't correct. You know, these days there's not too much publicity, but I think uh, the, there's more publicity on, on Facebook that, that the athlete... Um, yeah, the social you know, media. Posts. Yeah, posts. And, um, and I think they put a lot of pressure on themselves by wanting people to like what they're doing, perhaps. I don't know. It didn't, wasn't, wasn't any big deal to me to if I got the press or not. Um, I, think really I just pulled the piece out of the paper. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting what you mentioned before about, you know, you competed on that fear of losing. And I don't think it's the same for a lot of athletes these days. They compete for different reasons. What would be your take on that? Well, yeah, I, I can honestly say that, that there weren't many occasions where I was excited and 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 so confident that I, I can't lose this one. It was, it was always the fear that I would lose it. And I guess I had such high expectations. And, and you can't help but, but feel pressure from expectations of others. But, you know, it's something that I tell young students, if, you know, school kids, if I'm talking with them, that, you know, you might, it's good to set goals and, and dream and going to the, the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games or running this fast or jumping this far. But they've got to be realistic goals because everyone isn't born with, a, a, with a, an athletic talent and some don't have as much as others but they produce really good performances because they might work harder or they're guided in a, in a better direction. But 
don't sort of get ahead of yourself. Don't put things out there of what you're going to do because it's your actions that speak mm-hmm. the words. You know, I, I think a lot of people get delusional about what their their capacities are. Um, and as I said, you know, yes, dream and dream, you can dream big, but be realistic about your capabilities. Because really in a generation of athletes in this country, there's only 10 or 12 who will ever, ever make Olympic finals. The other people making up the team are all very good athletes and there's lots of very good athletes left at home who didn't make the team. But really, there's only the very few who are that special 10 or 12. And regarding making a living out of your sport, you can count on one hand the number of people in the country who do. Yeah. So so go and get a job and go and study or go and get an apprenticeship or do something because there's a lot of years for the rest of your life. Very, very important. Know your capabilities, have life balance. Dreams are great, but be realistic. And I think yeah. the other thing you touched on earlier was about being tough and I think that resilience, you know, to get get back up again when you fall down. And I always say it's not yes. how far you fall, it's how you get back up again. Yes, because it's, you know, the the highs and lows in sport, any sport um, are, are there and there's more, certainly more lows than highs, but um, it's the highs you remember. And, um, you know, you've got to be a good loser and you've got to experience all, all of those lows so that the highs are good. So I'd just like to finish, Denise, with a few quick questions. So this is basically the first thing that comes into your head. So uh, the first thing is, what was your favourite type of training? Okay. Um, I loved speed and speed endurance work, like running 150s, 120s, um, 200s, not so much 300s, and (laughs) certainly not work that had low recovery because my aerobic capacity was not good as a sprinter. (laughs) And who or what is your biggest inspiration or was when you were racing? Um, I, had, I didn't have an idol, and that might sound odd to a lot of people. I had three coaches in my athletic career, and they all played a part in getting me to where I, where I was um, in, the, in the finish of my career. Um, and, you know, I suppose they inspired me to continue training and... Um, and those people were Lindsay Jones, Bernie Jackson, Neville Silito. Um, they each had gave me different different things. They were completely different personalities, but were an inspiration to me. Three words to describe you as an athlete. Well, I was certainly I certainly had drive. I I um, was very motivated. I had this desire to win. Mm-hmm. I was motivated to train. Um, I responded positively to competition. Um, as, I, as I mentioned previously, I wasn't the greatest racer before the games, but when the chips were down and it meant something, I usually performed. There weren't many occasions in my international career where I had a poor performance. I was resilient and determined. I worked hard. Um, I had a really good work ethic because I had to come back from injury on lots of occasions. And I think I was coachable, very coachable. I took advice from my coach well. I might have questioned, like <laughs> when I said, um, do you, I really need to do a 350? And Neville would say, I can only advise. 
And so I'd go and do it, obviously. Because <laughs> he was the coach and he was the one who, who knew what I needed to um, peak at the right time. And he was a master of peaking his athletes at the right time. Neville also coached um, some... I was the first female, in fact, sprinter who he coached. So it was, it was different for him. He, you know, he had Gary Holdsworth, Greg Lewis, Peter Norman. And um, they were all different athletes too and had a lot of really good sprinters, Richard James, Cole McQueen, um, in my era. And, um, but I was the first female he coached. Um, but he, he said I was easy to coach, and I think I was because yeah, I did as I was told. Coaching is really important <laughs> and one people forget about. Yeah. So yeah. finally, Denise, this is the Purpose to Perform podcast, so we're all about performance. So what is performance to you? Well, I guess it's um, executing the skill that you've learned over time um, to the best of your ability on a particular day. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't, uh, the ultimate achievement you want to uh, achieve at your peak performance at the, at the right point in time, and that might be the Olympic final, doesn't always work that way. Mm -hmm. um, and to get the absolute perfect performance um, doesn't come along very often. No. Um, but if you can get close, um, you know, you, you feel satisfied, I think. Well, thank you so much, Denise, for being on the show and taking time out to share your story and your journey. And I'm sure there's lots of learnings out there for all my listeners. So thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks very much, Joe. Nice to speak with you. Before I go, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to a podcast and give it a rating. That way you won't miss out on the next episode. If you have feedback or an idea for our podcast, you can contact us at purpose, the number two, perform on Insta or Facebook or email purpose, the number two, perform at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Remember, performance is not a passive experience. This podcast is produced by the Brisbane Podcasting Centre. Thanks for listening.